This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. Hello, it's Mike. Let me check the calendar. Ah, good Shabbos. It is Saturday. This is the Saturday show. Every week on the Saturday show, we bring you a best of from the week and a best of from the past. Today's show, the theme is Korea, South Korea, and North Korea. I did a spiel yesterday on some interpresidential tension. Actually, I did it a couple days ago. Uh, in South Korea, Yoon versus Moon. Had a pun, couldn't avoid it, but also I laid out, I think, an odd tale, perhaps a cautionary one for the United States. Everything's cautionary if you're paranoid enough. Speaking of paranoid, I bring you Kim Jong-un and his father, Kim Jong-il. They're the godheads of North Korea. And in 2015, I did an interview with a man who escaped North Korea after being essentially the favorite poet of Kim Jong-il. Now, I have to tell you that after our interview, Jang Jin-sung, who was the North Korean defector, he was charged and arrested and is serving time for sexual assault. I do not want to over-extrapolate from the examples of the two fishermen I talk about in my spiel and Jang Jin-sung. I do not know why or if it is, in fact, often the case that North Korean defectors run afoul of the law, commit heinous crimes. But I do think the content of what he had to say and his experience, well, as I was talking about South Korea this week, I was remembering this interview from, you know, seven and a half years ago. So I bring you both of them. Enjoy. Jang Jin-sung defected from North Korea, escaped really to China, eventually to South Korea. That was a dozen years ago. When he was in North Korea, he was pretty prominent. He served in a very sensitive military unit. The task that he was in charge of was poetry. He wrote poems in praise of the North Koreans. And South Koreans would read those poems because he wrote them under a pseudonym with the intention being that they thought it was written by a fellow South Korean who simply liked Kim Jong-un or before him, Kim Jong-il. North Koreans would also read those poems. That's what North Koreans do. Read a lot of things, poems, stories, and movies praising the dear leader. Jang Jin Sung is here with me today. Hello, thank you for coming. Hello. Hello. And I'm also joined by Shirley Lee, who is Mr. Jang's translator. Hello, Shirley. Hi. Describe to me the first time you met Kim Jong Il. Until the day I met Kim Jong Il, I really didn't think he needed to use the toilet because he was such a divine and sanctified entity in, our, in my consciousness. And when I actually came to, to see this man, he was the highest authority in our nation, the most revered man in our nation. And what really jarred in my mind was that he was wearing high heels. And my thought was, what, why is this high man, why does he need to wear high heels? And also his, his words literally become the law of the nation. What he says is taken as 
as the constitution. And yet when he spoke in person, because it was not for record, he was just using kind of colloquial slang and mixing up his verbs and, you know, not speaking in the way he was supposed to speak as this godhead of the nation. And and so ironically, this encounter with God shattered my faith in his divinity. And you write that he used coarse language, he was stroking a Maltese dog, a puppy, and I think that the army, the military, had intended for you to be awed, but was that the beginning of you questioning everything about North Korea? So when I was called by Kim Jong-il into his presence, as it is called in North Korea, there was a Russian folk song playing at our meeting, and Kim Jong-il started to cry. He started to show tears, and, and all these men around him who were supposed to be the most powerful officials in the country imitated him. They started crying too. Again, another shocking shattering of the facade of here is this divinity. Why is he not only so human, but almost lower than human? Almost subhuman, not not maybe the right word, but it's why is he doing this in front of people who are already loyal to him? Why is he putting on a show? It felt like a show. It didn't feel, look real. And, and, and that really made me feel like he had all this power in the godhead of Kim Jong-il. In that, in that system, he was all-powerful. He wielded power over these men. But in human terms, he did not have everything. He did not have that fulfillment. And, and, and it was just this uh, division between Kim Jong-il, the presentation, and Kim Jong-il, the man. You wrote poetry that would be disseminated to South Koreans, and the intention was they would be convinced it was a South Korean writing this poetry, and it would be in praise of North Korea. However, knowing what you know now, was that effective? Was your poetry, would your poetry actually convince South Koreans that it was written by a South Korean and strike a pro-Northern chord? By the time I entered into my profession, the because of the kind of economic differences, South Korea was kind of ahead in so many ways. And so the psychological warfare had been determined to... It, it wasn't effective anymore. It wasn't having its desired effect. So the very tools that had been effective before my time, it was the whole machinery was turned inwards. And so the intended audience for the psychological warfare became domestic. So North Koreans would see outsiders praising their leader. To this day, North Korea engages in propaganda. And it's just a joke. I mean, we in America read these news releases and we laugh. Do the North Koreans think this is having any effect outside of North Korea? Do they think their propaganda works at all on the international stage? I think perhaps it's maybe people look too much at the propaganda as if it was the only tool, as if it's a matter of brainwashing, as if it's not having any other way of looking at it. But North Korea operates in terms of two fundamental pillars of control. One is physical, which is the surveillance, the prison camps, the snitches, the mass surveillance, so to say. And the other is psychological. This is propaganda, music, songs, the way from birth to death you have this as your 
way of life, your faith, your belief, your political ideology is to serve Kim and to die for Kim, as if Kim is your nation. And it's so effective in its mutual dependency. If you just had the propaganda, it would look funny as outsiders would look. But in that system of codependence, it's not funny. It's it's true. And if you if it's not true for you, there's terror to hold you back. So it's just this system that keeps it together is how it's not just psychological, but physically held together by the surveillance system. Do North Koreans feel repressed? They do feel repressed. It can't be otherwise. They're human beings who feel... They can't maybe qualify or tangibly describe what it is that is not right. But the problem is that there is no alternative system or government they can compare it to. So for them, this is how the world is. How, how can it be any other way? Right. They might say reality is a depressing thing. Reality is sometimes someone snitches on you and sometimes you get thrown in a concentration camp. They would just say that's called reality. Good. Yeah, Kuchu. exactly. <laughs> Kuchu? Kuchu means like, yeah. Kuchu, yeah. yeah. Um, officials in the United States wanted to change North Korea, and they do want Kim Jong-un now to be out of power. What mistakes do they make in understanding North Korea that gets in their way of maybe getting Kim Jong-un out of power? Hmm. We really need to separate the North Korean system from the North Korean people. There's a system and a regime, and they're human beings who are part of that system or regime. And until now, most North Korea policies and approaches have tried to change the regime, like make you know give it pressure or isolate it or sanction it or talk with it or give it incentive to change. And and the whole point of this system is, it doesn't want to change. It wants to maintain power. So w- what is really effective is, is change comes from below. That's what forces the regime to adapt its policies is, for example, marketization. It's a force from below. It's not instigated. The regime does not want to get rid of Kim Jong-un. It's, it's, it's not going to instigate a transformation of its system. It's only going to do that when it has an incentive to do so. And that incentive comes from below because those are the people it needs to keep in the system. Okay, but how do you do that? I mean, it's the hermit kingdom. You can't get information to the North Korean people. It's, it seems like the hardest country in the world to foment popular resistance because, you know, as you know better than anyone, it's uh, cl- shut off to the rest of the world. So, officially, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il the Kims are the most revered figures and personalities. But in reality, who is more revered than the Kims are, for example, is it Franklin Washington, the president of America on a U.S. banknote, is in reality much more worshipped than the Kims. The Kims is just like lip service. But with money, that's how, that's what people really cherish is money. North Korea is known to have Nuclear weapons, it's scary, it's, it's a threat. But it doesn't control the price of a single egg in its country. It's not, it does not have that absolute control that is characterized in, in, the, in the popular mind, is that it's got nukes, we can't do anything about it. And to, to use an analogy to, to describe how that 
is is kind of unhelpful. Looking only at this this barrier um, is if Kim Il Sung had full on Kevlar body armor, mm-hmm. and Kim Jong Il had kind of just on his front, and his backside was just naked and vulnerable. And in Kim Jong Un's time, it's like he holds this small shield, and the rest of him is vulnerable. And that shield is like the scary things, the nukes, the weapons, all, all this, the isolation, the hermit kingdom, all these impenetrables. But in effect, people are looking only to the system, not to the people in that system who are already open to money, to to American dollars. It's 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 people are looking for the looking only at the impenetrables when there is a host of other openings. Having lived the life you've lived, gone through what you've gone through, is it easier than we'd imagine to control people's thoughts, or is it harder than we could possibly realize to control a whole population's thoughts? It's very easy to agitate a population politically. From the perspective of a regime who's got control over society. Jang Jin Sung, a pseudonym because the North Koreans would still like to kill him. Jang Jin Sung, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And Shirley Lee, thank you. Thanks. And now the spiel. The president of South Korea is taking steps to bring criminal charges against the former president of South Korea. Charging a former president is not that novel an act in Korean politics. In fact, not doing so is the exception. The current office holder, Yoon Suk-yul, is taking aim at his more moderate predecessor, Moon Jae-in. Or, to be fair to those who are very invested in South Korean politics, Yoon is a little bit to the right, maybe a lot to the right, and Moon is a little bit to the left. Maybe those a lot to the right would say he's very to the left. Anyway, I have to make clear that I'm not interested in the tension between President Yoon and former President Moon for any small-minded reasons you may be suspecting. I am not, repeat, not captivated by the rhyming nature of the two men's names. Ever since I lived in South Korea, I have simply found politics there to be fascinating. I stay abreast of the news. I know, for instance, that it's somewhat of a tradition to prosecute your predecessor, and I'm further aware that Moon is more popular and was, after leaving office, more popular than is now Yoon, and Yoon only won by a sliver of the vote. He's seen his popularity decline. Maybe he's looking for some sort of initiative to distract the public. Again, I'm simply keen on Korean current events. There's no other reason. And while it's true that I am attuned to a Yoon Swoon creating an opportune time to impugn Moon, saying that sentence is not the reason I bring you this story. It's fascinating in its own right, as I think you will come to agree. First of all, you have the dynamic between these two men. How did Yoon rise to prominence anyway? Well, this 2019 report from Ararang News sheds some light. President Moon Jae-in's pick for the prosecutor general is Yoon Seok-yeol, a nomination signaling sweeping reforms at the nation's law enforcement agency. The reason behind the nomination, Yoon's unshakable principles. So Moon 
seeking to signal how seriously he took the corruption of his predecessor, Park Yun-hae, hired a tough prosecutor. And now that prosecutor, as president, is persecuting the former president. But in this case, it's not for the usual acts of graft. That's how things typically go in South Korea. No, the issue here is immigration, one specific immigration case. In 2019, Moon who when it came to North Korea was more of a dove and convened two summits with Kim Jong-un, he ordered two would-be defectors to be repatriated back to the North. This most likely means that these fishermen were executed. It was the first time the South had ever returned a defector. Pictures of the fishermen being dragged to their apparent doom across the demilitarized zone have surfaced, and Yoon is raising a fuss about that. In the context of U.S. policy, it might seem really odd. You have the more conservative Yoon championing a case of asylum and not just criticizing but contemplating criminal charges against his more liberal predecessor because his more liberal predecessor deported two individuals. Of course, in the United States, anti-immigration rhetoric often paints any asylum seeker as immigrant as a criminal. Well, listen to this. The two fishermen I'm talking about, in an account disputed by no one that I could find, literally mutinied against their captain at sea, killed him with a hammer and axes, although some sources say an axe and hammers, and then lured other crewmates two by two and slaughtered them as well via axe and hammer or some combination of hammer and axe. They did this to cover up their crimes. More than a dozen people were killed. Moon's former national security advisor sought to underline the nature of the defectors and explaining why he repatriated them by pointing out these are not just some murderers killing one or two people. They are notorious, heinous killers, end quote. In South Korea, the dovish former leader is taking heat for that decision by the more hardline conservative who is on the side of providing a safe harbor for the mass murderers. Of course, immigration isn't really immigration in South Korea when it comes to the North. It's unification, human rights, and the deepest cultural wound that can be contemplated. So that's how immigration plays differently there than it would here in America, but so too does prosecuting presidents. In the U.S., we don't do it, or at least we haven't done it. The question now is, should we make an exception, the rare exception, as it were, for, uh, what's the phrase? Oh, yes, the notorious and heinous acts of the last executive. Here is how South Korea deals with it. I will now read to you a list of the fate of every South Korean leader predating these Moon Yoon fellows. Here we go. Got it right here. Imprisoned, imprisoned, suicide after being criminally charged, uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, retired. So this was, that was the good period. And then imprisoned, imprisoned, retired, assassinated, deposed in a coup. It's not a proper way to run a government. I got to say, somewhere in between blanket guidance prohibiting prosecuting a former leader for actual illegalities and almost always doing it for iffy illegalities, that's where the sweet spot lies. Sweet meaning we had a horrible leader and he requires criminal referrals. I do think the specifics, of course, dictate the stance that prosecutors must take. But let's remember, a cautious prosecutor or a reluctant legislator might tell himself or herself that their job is merely to carefully steer the ship of state. Only one day they find out they've got some disgruntled crew members willing to off them via axe and hammer. Hammer and axe. Killing everyone on board 
two by two. They call it the reverse Noah. And I say you got to watch out for that eventuality as well. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer, and we will see you Monday.